So we are done with another week. Yay! After next week, we'll be halfway done. So, getting scary. We're, get, we're getting there real quick. Exam coming up on Monday uh, covers chapters 3, 4 through 8, and 9. And you see a little 2 up there. There's actually a couple questions on the very end of chapter 2 that we didn't cover. So I did put a couple questions on the Doppler effect, so make sure you look at that too. There's like two questions that involve the Doppler effect. Maybe two or three. So there are a couple questions just because I did not, that's the part I did not test you on before. So that is, yeah, that is included as, as well. Although the vast majority of it is chapters 3, 4 through 8 and, eight and 9. Uh, homework 4 due on October the 11th at the end of next week. The iTunes quiz is, will be available starting on Monday. And that covers the pictures. I didn't put it up there this time. It covers the pictures from the 7th of September through today. So tomorrow, Sunday, won't count on it even though it doesn't sit to Monday. It's already set and ready to go up there. I finished that this morning. So that is up and ready and you can take that. Um, take that anytime starting on Monday. It will be up for the whole week. The next quiz, the quiz four, will be in class on October the 16th. If we get through what I think we'll get through this week and next. If not, we'll do that on the Friday. We might do that on the Friday, which is also when your second article review is due. And what I haven't put in there is your second solar observation should have been. I'll probably have you turn those in sometime next week. So a, a second one, one for credit. You only need one more for credit. But if you only turn in one the first time and one the second time and one the third time, you're really rushing to get 10 at the end of the semester. So you get full credit for getting one more. You'll still get the five points for doing it and turning it in. But if that's all you're doing is one each time I ask you, then you're going to be behind at the end of the semester. So if you have more, that's great. Why don't we put that right in the middle? Since that really doesn't involve a lot of work for you, I won't put it due Monday. Go ahead and turn them in on Wednesday and I'll give them back to you on Friday. So I'll add that in there too so I get a chance to make sure you're, everybody's keeping up. Plus when I remind you every couple of weeks then it's, oh I gotta get back to making those and I forgot about it for two weeks or it rained when I was going to do it and it rained constantly for the last week I was going to do it. So, questions? Does it also happen to me every time I went out there is there yeah. an overcast or something? Yeah, it does but that's why, I, it t ten, usually you can get, usually people have been able to get ten days through the semester. So. Uh, no, no. No questions. No other questions? All right. Picture of the day for today. And I did note we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, can you see it on here? Probably not very well. Um, the website, uh, the NASA APOD website is down with the government shutdown for whatever reason that the NASA servers are turned off. So if you try to go to the normal site that I send you to, it'll just spin and spin and nothing will load. You can, this, the site is mirrored all over the world, so there are a lot of mirror sites. There's one, I don't know if you can read that up there. If not, I'll put a link to it on the D2L homepage if I have not already. I did it for my other classes. Did I do it for this one? Yeah. Anybody? I did do it, okay. I thought I copied it here. I put a link to this one. This is the uh, British mirror of it. So this is up and updated. You still have access to archives on the back. If you want to go back and look at old pictures before anything that you've missed, you can go back and look at those as well. At least, well, at least through October 1st in that case. I'll have to check some of the others. I'll check and see if there's any others or if they get that, get that updated. Um, but 
So you might want that for when you're looking for the objects for the iTunes quiz this coming, this coming week. This picture is the densest galaxy and there's a couple galaxies that we're looking at here. I took my, took my pointer sticks away. There we go. All right. Densest galaxy, there's a whole bunch of galaxies actually pictured here. The biggest one is this giant elliptical galaxy up here. Not, nice, not quite as nice and pretty as some of the spiral ones that we've probably seen and that we will see as we go through the class when we start talking about galaxies. Elliptical galaxy is really just a big glob of stars. So there's no gas, no spiral arms, nothing else. It's just a big uh, object, maybe the shape of a basketball if it's really spherical. Just made up of billions upon billions of stars. Some of them are a little bit more flattened, more like a football shape. Not much flatter than that, not flat, flat like the spiral galaxies get really, 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 really thin. But that's one galaxy. That's not the densest one. There's also a couple others. You can see a few scattered around, maybe here, some very distant galaxies that show up in the image. But another one here. So there's a couple other more distant galaxies. But the one we're looking at is this little tiny thing right here. Big deal, right? The other one looks a lot more, at least it's a lot bigger, even if it doesn't have the pretty spiral arms. But this is one of the densest galaxies known. Densest in terms of how many stars there are. And if you were to compare this to our galaxy, the density, and I had the number at one point, what was it? They didn't put it in here. Where was it? Was it this one? Let me get the number for you. 15,000 times greater density of stars than in our part of our Milky Way galaxy. So 15,000 times denser means stars are on the average about 25 times closer. So where our closest star is about four, a little over four light years away, the Alpha Centauri system. If you were in this galaxy and you lived on a star, lived around a star like the sun, your closest uh, star would be a little less than two-tenths of a light year away. Much closer. So, I mean, 25 times closer in terms of that. So you can imagine what your night sky look like. Right? Glowing bright with all these really bright stars. You, know, you see Venus out there. Has anyone seen Venus in the evening? A couple? A few of you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, out there in the west, you can't miss it. If this, once the sun is down enough, you can't miss that big, bright thing. You would have stars, many stars, brighter, many, much brighter than that. And Venus is the brightest object in our sky after the sun and the moon. So you would have a lot of stars even brighter than Venus, you know. And not just a little bit brighter, but 10, 20, 100 times brighter than Venus. So be a very bright, very different sky than what we're used to looking at, a very dark sky with very few stars. You'd have a lot more stars, so more of the sky would be covered. So you know, you'd actually have it a lot brighter. And with that many bright stars, you'd actually have you know, a relatively bright sky at night. You wouldn't have a real dark sky. So it would be interesting to be able to, to observe from something like that. You know, what would you see, astronomically speaking? What would you be able to see? How do we get a compact galaxy like this that's this dense? That's a real good question. Like with a lot of these, you know, we're looking at the beginnings of research as to what's going on in the universe. You know, we don't know. Uh, a couple things that are thought about. There is a massive black hole at the center that's been detected from its X-ray emission. So there is a big black hole there at the center. Not surprising if you're squishing that many stars that close together that eventually some of them would coalesce and you'd start forming a black hole and eventually have a very large black hole at the center. 
but that gives some idea that perhaps it was a bigger galaxy and collided with another galaxy through collisions, actually had all of its outer layers stripped out. So if you took a galaxy much like this big giant one here and you were able to strip out these outer layers, you're looking at just the very dense core of it. And in fact, if you go down to the center of our Milky Way galaxy, not this dense, but you actually get densities that are quite high down there. You'd actually have a much brighter sky if you were to live closer to the center of our galaxy as compared to the outskirts where we live where the uh, stars are much fewer and far between. So a couple things like that have been suggested that maybe it had outer layers that eventually got stripped out and combined with another galaxy you know, billions of years ago. We don't see the remnants anymore. It's all long gone. But that may be some way that we actually created, the, created this, uh, this galaxy was created, again, billions of years ago. So it's a relatively, relatively nearby, only about 54 million light years. So oh, that it? that's it, 54 million. You know, that's 54 million out of 13 billion. So if you've got 13 billion dollars in the bank, right? Do you miss 54 million? <laughs> no, probably not, right? And so, you know. so questions? What do you mean by 13 billion there? 13 billion light years is being about the size of the, the size of the universe. So the most distant objects we see are 13 billion light years away. So compared to that, 54 million, hmm. it's a lot, but it's not, not much, it can, relatively speaking at least. Question? Yeah? How do we like, measure, or how can we tell that the end of the universe is 13 billion? Like, not the edge of the universe, well not necessarily the edge of the universe, the most distant objects we can see. So the most distant objects we can see, we measure their distances to be about 13.7 or so billion light years Plus away. Or Plus or minus a relatively large amount for error in those measurements, which we'll be talking a lot about distance measurements coming up in the next few, next few chapters, in fact, starting in this one. Other questions? No, no, no. All right. We're ready to get the day going and over with, right? All right, let's see. We're not doing the sun again. We're done with the sun. That's the other class that gets to do the sun today. We are on to the stars. So measuring the stars. Hmm? Very pretty picture, yes. It's actually a cluster of stars. And one of the things that you see on it is one of the things, one of the first things that you can measure about the stars uh, is the temperature. So temperature is actually one thing that we can measure. And we can get an idea of it very easily just by looking at the stars. I see some very blue stars there. Blue stars are very hot. I know backwards of what we think, right? You tend to think of blue as cold and red as hot. It actually isn't. And if you ever look at like a candle flame or a gas flame, the blue part, the real hot part, is the part real close to the, to the flame, real down in. And the yellower and orange and red parts are much further, further out. So these blue stars are all quite hot, uh, probably two, three five times the temperature of the sun, so much hotter. The red stars are much cooler, maybe about half the temperature of the sun. If you see some yellowish white ones, those would be closer to the temperature of the sun in there. So that's one thing that we can measure 
Now that's not giving you an exact temperature. I can, I can tell you relatively just by looking at them what you're hotter and what you're cooler. There are better ways uh, using the spectrum to actually get more accurate measurements to be able to do that. But that's measuring anything in terms of measuring the stars. We need to, all we can do is look at the light. So everything that we learn about the stars involves observing the light that comes from them. We can't go send the spacecraft out to millions of different stars, pick up samples, stick thermometers in them, you know, like we'd like to do in a lab here on Earth. Right? If you want to study uh, something, you can measure its temperature and measure its temperature again and again and again and under different circumstances and see how things change. You can't do that in the sky. All you can do is observe exactly how it is. So it makes astronomy a little bit different than some of the other sciences. You know, chemists can take chemicals and mix two together and see what happens. Well, what if I put more of this one or less? You can keep, keep re-experimenting, right? Unless you blow yourself up, well, then, then you're kind of out of luck. But you know, the astronomer cannot. The astronomer can look at all sorts of different stars, but can only look at those individual stars. Can't go experiment with them. Can't say, well, what if that temperature was a little bit hotter? What if its core was a little bit hotter? What does that do to the star? Theoretically, I can do that, but I can't actually go experiment with that star and make it a little hotter, make it a little cooler, move it around, you know, do any other kinds of measurements with it. Everything that we learn about them is only from the light that comes from them. So some of the things that we're going to look at in this chapter, uh, just to get a kind of an understanding of stars, first start by looking at distances and the stars in the solar neighborhood. Again, compared to our picture of the day, they're going to be relatively far away in our galaxy. And then we'll look at some of the things that we can measure. One of the easiest ones to get is the apparent brightness. How bright does that star appear to be? Well, that's relatively easy. We can count, the, you know, count how much light is coming from it. Get a detector there that counts how much light. You can use your eye. It was first done just with the eye and just saying, well, here's the brightest stars and here's the faintest stars. So you can actually measure the apparent brightness pretty easily. Um, the luminosity, that's a little bit tougher. A luminosity measures how much light it's really, is really, that star is really emitting. So each section of its surface, each square meter on its surface is putting out so much energy. Trying to figure that out is a lot harder because you need the distance in order to figure out the luminosity. Right? I get a flashlight and I shine it at you from here. It's real bright in your eyes, right? Now we go down the hallway and I shine the same thing and it's just not as bright. Right? It's going to look a lot fainter. Further away I get, the fainter it's going to get. So the luminosity is going to change depending on, the luminosity would not change. The luminosity is how much light that, real, that thing is really putting out, but the apparent brightness changes. Apparent brightness is the easy thing to measure. Luminosity is not when you can't go measure the distances to the stars very easily. And then we'll look. I already talked a little bit about temperatures. We'll look in more detail about measuring some stellar temperatures. Sizes. How big is how big are the stars? We'll I'll take a look at that and see how big the stars are. We have our little baby sun here. Tiny compared to some of the stars in the universe. Gigantic compared to some of the other ones. So somewhere in the middle, but there are stars that there are stars out there that you could put where the sun is and you know, we'd be way inside, not just at the edge, we'd be way inside that orbiting. In fact, so would Mars and Jupiter. So gigantic stars compared to our sun. And then we'll look, jumping here, we'll look at masses and how do we, how do we weigh the stars. Again, we can only do any of this by measuring the light that's coming from them. And we'll come back, I'm going to do a little bit on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. 
that's a way to kind of catalog the stars and sort of look at their properties all in one graph that we'll make. And I'll go through that and in fact after I'm done with chapter 10 I'm going to go back and we're going to look at it one more time in a little bit more detail and probably do that as part of a lab where I'll actually have you, you know, plot out some stars and make, make an HR diagram to try to get a little understanding of that. It's really one of the key uh, things in studying stellar astronomy and studying the stars, studying clusters of stars and studying galaxies. That is very, a very important diagram so we will come back to that uh, quite a bit throughout. The, you'll see it in chapter 10, see it in chapter 11, see it in chapter 12, and probably 13 and 14 as well. So it goes over the next few, quite few chapters you'll be seeing, you'll be seeing that diagram. And extending the distance scale. So how do we, how do we get distances? You're going to see we sort of maybe mentioned a little bit about distances early on, but we're really going to get into measuring distances now. How do we measure the distances to the stars? That's not an easy thing to do, right? You can't take a tape measure even to the sun, figure out how far away the sun is. Talk about the nearest stars, you're talking about light years. You know, can't send someone there and watch the odometer in their spaceship. How many miles did you travel? Come back. How far was it? You can't do that. There have to be other ways just looking at the stars to be able to determine their distances as well. And you'll see that there's a number of different things. So starting off with distances, one way that we can determine distances, in fact the only direct way to determine a distance to any star is using what is called parallax. Parallax is looking at the star from two different positions. Could be looking at the star from here and I could move, move another telescope over here and look at it again and that star is going to shift its position a tiny bit. Now that works fine if, I, if you guys are the stars and I'm the Earth, right? Because if I look at one of you, you know, two people are lined up here, but if I go move over here, guess what? Now you're lined up with somebody else, right? The nearer people have appeared to shift as opposed to the people in the back of the room. Well, the same thing would happen with stars. Those nearby star would appear to be in a slightly different position when I'm in one, one spot. And if I moved a little bit, that star is going to change its position. Now, if I move something like that within this classroom or even within on the earth any place, the shift is too tiny for us to be able to measure. The only way we can measure it is by actually letting the earth do the moving for us. In January the earth is over here, right? If we wait six months, earth has moved all the way around the sun. So it's actually moved two astronomical units away from it was, where it was. Sun is one astronomical unit away. Now the Earth is one astronomical unit on the other side. So we have a baseline. Instead of me moving just a few feet or a few miles, I can actually move two astronomical units. So 186 million miles. I can move quite a distance and now look at the star and now we can start to see shifts. It's still incredibly small. And this was one of the problems because this is a prediction that was made by the heliocentric theory saying that the sun is the center and the earth is moving around it. It predicts that parallax should be there. Well, people looked for it. The Greeks would have looked for it. Tycho would have looked for it. Kepler, Galileo were all looked for parallax. No one was able to find it. No one was able to actually measure it even using this long baseline. And if you think about it, you can't get much longer than that. Right? Not unless you're going to go put something up on Mars or put something up on you know, one of the moons of Jupiter where you could get actually bigger, bigger baselines. 
You know, you can't do much else if you're confined to the Earth. That's as big as you can possibly get. And you couldn't measure it. Now part of that problem was, if you recall, I believe we had, we talked about the measures, we talked about degrees, and one degree is, oops, not 30, I'm trying to do the moon there, I'm trying to jump ahead of myself. 60 arc minutes, and each arc, and one degree, and each arc minute is 60 arc seconds. Did that way back, right? Looked at the degree measures. The moon, full moon, is about a half a degree in size, which is 30 arc minutes or 1,800 arc seconds. That's how big the full moon is. Now, the moon looks pretty big out there, but the measurements you're trying to make, the nearest star's parallax, is less than one arc second. So go out there and look at the full moon. You've got to wait about two weeks for it, a little over a week and a half. Go look at the full moon. Imagine dividing that up into over 2,000 little tiny pieces, right? One three quarters of an arc second, actually a little bit more than that. Divide that up into about 2,000 little pieces and try to measure the shift of one, one, one of those. You know, no matter how big the moon is, just splitting that into 2,000 pieces, it's going to be a very, very small number you're trying to measure, and that's for the nearest star. And that's why it wasn't until the mid-1800s that we actually got the first measurements of a parallax. So finally able to verify what Galileo and Copernicus and everybody said, that the Earth was moving around the sun, now we had a verification. We could actually measure the parallax. And we've been able to measure it for the few hundred nearest stars, which go down to measures even much less than that to a few tenths to hundredths of an arc second. We can measure that. That's only for the very nearby stars. Anything that's over, you know, thousands of a few thousand light years away, that doesn't work. That angle's going to get so tiny we still can't measure it. Measure it. So the galaxy that we were looking at, what did I say it was? 50 some million light years away? You imagine how tiny the shift is? You know, even our technology today will not even become close to being able to measure that. So this works for stars right about, right around where we are now. Right around where the sun is, we can use this to measure the distances to the nearby stars. It doesn't help us with other galaxies. It doesn't help us with most of our own galaxy. Many of the stars within our own galaxy are also too far away. But you measure that shift, and once you do, you have a way to calculate the distance. Nice easy formula there. The distance in a unit called a parsec. And one parsec is a little over three light years. Uh, 3.26 or so light years. So one parsec is a little over three light years. Uh, there's no stars within one parsec of the sun. But it is defined, what a parsec is, is a st it would be a shift with a parallax of one arc second. So, cross out all the middle part, parsec, parallax of one arc second. 
There aren't any stars that close, aren't any stars within one parsec. But whatever number you get, if you put 0.75 in there, take 1 divided by 0.75, you get a little bit over 4, which is the distance to Alpha Centauri. This Alpha Centauri is the story system, the nearest, nearest stars to the sun. So very, very small shifts that we're, me- that we're able to measure. And those stars within a few hundred, maybe even a thousand or two thousand uh, light years, we're able to measure distances to directly. Anything beyond that, our galaxy is, you know, 75, 100, 120,000 light years across, depending on what paper you what you read, right? You got to use something else. So that's what we're going to start looking at later in the chapter. But this is the only direct method. Everything else is going to depend on determining these distances to these nearest stars and measuring these extremely small angles. So it gives you an idea, as you mentioned, right? 13.7 billion years plus or minus what? When we talk about measuring distances to the stars, we might say it's, you know, Oh, that's you know, 55 million light years, but it might be plus or minus, you know, 10 mil, 2 million, 5 million. You know, that can be the size of the error, or even larger, as the further we get out in the universe. So, here's just a little sample. Uh, we did a little bit of this last time. This is just another example of it. Um, the nearest star is Alpha Centauri, or actually Proxima Centauri. It's a three-star system. So Alpha Centauri is the brightest of the two stars. Alpha Centauri is actually quite like the sun in terms of brightness and temperature. Very similar to our sun. There's another star that's a little bit fainter that orbits around it, close together. And then there's a third star that orbits around both of those two. That star that orbits around both of them happens to be in the part of its orbit where it's closest to us now. So it's actually slightly closer than either of the other two stars. But to give an idea of what the distances are, if you make the sun a little marble, the Earth would be a grain of sand about a meter away. So you've got a marble, you've got a grain of sand a meter away. What's in between those two? Well, two more grains of sand, right? Mercury and Venus. That's it as that goes around. Where's the next nearest star? 270 kilometers away, so I've got a marble here. Go off 270 kilometers, which would be what? About 120, about 160, 170 miles. So I'm not, not that familiar, but that's about the distance, yeah. So one marble here, one marble out there. That's the next star. What's in between those two? Few grains of sand that are in our solar system. So to give you some idea of you know, how empty everything, everything is here. I did the one for you last time with the Earth and the, just with the Earth and the Moon, right? We had the Earth here and the Moon orbiting in the back, and what's in between that? Nothing at all. Right? And only any satellites we put up. The solar system, in terms of this, again, the sun is a marble. The solar system extends out about 50 meters. 50 meters out of 270 kilometers. So that's it. Once you get out about 50 meters from the sun, from that marble, and we can do the 50 meters, right? 50 meters isn't that bad. We can take it outside and walk 50 meters. We're not getting close to Philadelphia, right? Are we getting closer to Philadelphia if we walk 50 meters in that direction? Not really. <coughs> Technically, yes, but are really? No. So the rest of that, beyond that, that's our whole solar system. That's all the planets, all the asteroids, all the comets, all the Kuiper Belt objects, all of that stuff. The rest of that is empty in between those stars. There's very little material there. 
So it kind of gives you an idea of how empty things are in the universe. Question, sir? Is the rest of the Milky Way the same kind of In the part where we are, yes. The whole Milky Way, no. If you go in towards the center, yes, it is denser. So you would have it closer. And in fact, think about that. What did, we say, what did I say the distances were for that very compact galaxy? One of the densest galaxies, about 25 times closer? Okay, so let's make that 250 kilometers to make it easy. That would mean you'd have a star, a marble here, and your next marble would be 10 kilometers away. That's the densest galaxy. You know, and you've still got 10 kilometers between those two marbles. It's not as bad as 270, but you're still, you know, you're not getting here. You're still driving, you know, six miles to get to that next nearest star. So even in that very dense galaxy that we looked at, boy, they picked that picture just right for us today, didn't they? Get to keep referring. Sometimes I don't get to go back to them. Some, this time it worked out really good. So really fit, really, how, I give an idea of how empty, even in the dense galaxy where everything is much closer together, it would still be extremely empty. So even in the dense core of our galaxy, you know, it's not going to be like you have star here, star here, star here, you know, put five stars within this room to that scale. They're still going to be miles away. Anything else? Okay. Alrighty. So here's a little picture of some of the closest stars to the sun. Now you can imagine in that denser galaxy you'd have a lot more material. You'd have a lot of stars in this distance. Um, you recognize all these star names, right? No? None of them? One. one. Which one do you recognize? Alpha Centauri. Good. Uh, you might recognize, how about Sirius? Some people might have heard of. Brightest star in the sky. Uh, Procyon, another relatively bright star. Most of the other ones, not so much. Um, that's because most of the stars that are close to us aren't all that bright. In fact, they're extremely faint. Um, Barnard star, one of the nearer stars, only a couple of parsecs away, so only about five or six light years away. A little bit further away, what can I say, two parsecs, what is it, two parsecs, about two parsecs, so yeah, about, about five, six light years away. Isn't visible unless you've got a pair of binoculars. That's how faint some of these stars are. So our sun is relatively bright. Alpha Centauri is much like our sun. It's not the brightest star in the sky, but it's, it's up there, it's pretty bright. It shines as one of the brightest stars if you go down in the southern hemisphere. Barnard star and most of these other ones aren't even visible, are not even visible with the naked eye. You need a telescope, you need binoculars to be able to see them. That's how faint many of these stars are. There's a few others that would be visible. Uh, usually the ones with the Greek letter designation, Epsilon Indi, would be visible. Uh, was there another one? Tau Ceti. A couple of the others that would actually be visible you know, to the naked eye. But not, not the most prominent stars. The most prominent ones are the ones that actually have a name to them, such as you know, Procyon or Sirius that actually have names given to them. So this actually shows how they're spread out three-dimensionally. So some of them are pretty flat down in the disk here, in this flattened disk, which is the, would be the central part of, our, which would be the part of our galaxy. Some are further below it. Some are further above it. So they're moved around a little bit, scattered around within the disk part of our galaxy. There's a number of stars scattered around. But that just gives you an idea. Again, that's that marble. There's Alpha Centauri, which is, you know, how many, you know, how many, 270 kilometers away? 
So, you know, you're not talking about putting this scale model here with marbles in the solar, in the, in the classroom. Maybe with get, get down to grains of sands, so you're getting a little bit closer. You might actually be able to fit it somewhere in here. But even for the more, even for the denser ones where you condense all of this down, it is a lot more. Now, one of the things you look at this, you look at Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri, according to this, is what? Looks like it's about three parsecs away. Watch out the way they draw it in three dimensions. If you look here, Alpha Centauri is here, but trace the line back. It's actually this far away, but it's just well below the or orbit, orbital plane of the sun. So it's way down here. So this is actually the distance for it, or it's closer to that. Where are we? One parsec would be a little bit. This, is the, this should be the one parsec. It's a little bit further than one parsec out. So this, some of the numbering on there is not the best. But the idea I want you to get is that really, even though all these stars are very close, you know, if all these stars were like Sirius, which is relatively close or bright, or some of the other brighter stars in the sky. Uh, what else do we hear of? Rigel, maybe? Betelgeuse? Some other names you might have heard of? Um, if those stars were this close, they'd be glowing as bright as the full moon. Not as bright as the sun, but they'd be as bright as the full moon. That's the whole thing, is that there's so many stars that are just really, really faint. There's a whole lot of these little tiny stars that are spread throughout the galaxy. Betelgeuse is a very large red giant, yeah, very big red giant, yeah, super giant. A red, red super giant actually would be classified. And it's not the biggest star. Yeah? Is that Canis Majoris, is that the biggest one? Uh, Sirius is the biggest, and that's in Canis Majoris, the large, large dog. How far is that away? Uh, Sirius is eight or nine light years I'm doing off the top of my head. Can we, can we see that one? Sirius? Oh yeah, Sirius, nice, big, bright, brightest star in the sky. That's the const that's the constellation. Oh, I thought that was the biggest which one's the biggest star? Is that Sirius? The biggest star? No, there's another one. It's not it's not listed on here. There's another I mean Sirius is not Sirius is not a star much bigger than the sun. It's a little bit hotter and a bit brighter. But it's not the largest star. Some of the largest stars. And I'll show you a thing of that probably on Monday. I'll I have a little clip to show you on the on the star. On the on the biggest I'm looking at some of the big stars and comparing their sizes. All right, so those are 30 of the closest stars. Here's one of them I mentioned. There's Barnard star. Uh, doesn't really stand out, does it? Got to use an arrow there to point where it is. Here it is in one image. Here it is a little bit later. A little bit later, that's 22 years later. So. We always say the stars don't move, right? You go look at the constellations now, and you go look at them 10 years from now. You know, the, the constellations when you were born are the same constellations we see right now. Constellations when your grandparents were born are the same constellations we see right now. The stars really don't move and change their positions that much. Barnard star is one that's unusual. It's very close and moving very quickly through the sky. And that motion we see is what we call proper motion. That's how fast the star appears to move across the sky. Typically it can be measured in you know, fractions of an arc second every year. So it's very tiny and even over hundreds or thousands of years you're not really going to notice it. But those stars are slowly moving. If you could come back in tens of thousands of years, the Big Dipper is slowly stretching. 
There's seven stars in the Big Dipper, right? Four in the three in the handle and four making the bowl. Well, the outer edge ones, this one and the one on this end, are moving in different directions from the rest of it. So it's like slowly stretching. It's going to slowly stretch the straight the shape of the Dipper. Will you notice it 50 years from now? No. If you come back and look at it 50 years from now, it's going to look just like it does today to your eye. If you could come back in, 50, in 50, 15,000 years, it wouldn't look the same. It would look quite different. So over long periods of time, the stars do change. They do move. And that's what we're seeing here. So Barnard star is one. We can actually watch it moving across the sky in just 22 years. It's the very largest shift. Other stars are actually moving. The Alpha Centauri system is moving in a direction out here at about 30 kilometers per second. We can measure that slow shift. It doesn't change very much. 30 kilometers per second, that's pretty fast, right? 30 kilometers per second, we'll multiply that by what, 3,600 to get kilometers per hour? That's zipping through there. But the distance is so far away that it doesn't appear to move much. Now, what that means is that when we measure velocities, we talked about the Doppler effect, right? I got two questions for it for you on the, on the exam or so. Um, when we measure the Doppler velocity of a star, all we measure is whether it's coming towards us or away from us. So if we take a Doppler measurement of Alpha Centauri, we would say that star is coming towards us. That's all the Doppler effect can measure. It can measure what part of the star's velocity is coming towards us or away from us. That doesn't mean when we measure a star and say, oh, this star is coming towards us, that it's on a collision course. In reality, Alpha Centauri is actually moving off in this direction. So it is moving towards us in part, but it's also moving across. And it's getting closer to us. And eventually here, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, million years from now, it'll actually be a little bit closer. Instead of being a little over a parsec, it'll be just about a parsec away. It'll reach its closest, and then it keeps heading off in that direction. It'll get further and further away again. Other stars will get closer. There will actually be times you can measure the, the positions of the stars and how they're moving that will actually get much closer than one parsec. So there have been times in the distant past, again, distant past millions of years ago, not distant past you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, where you would have had you know, stars much closer to the sun than Alpha Centauri. It just happens to be the current star that is, cl that is close. So that's showing the motion and trying to give you an idea. When we, when we talk about the Doppler effect and we say something's moving towards us or away from us, it doesn't mean that it's rushing right at us or that it's moving directly away from us. It actually means that there's some component of it. It's moving in some direction. Alpha Centauri is moving this way. And if you break that velocity up, split it up, you can find that there's some component that's moving towards us and some that's moving across our line of sight. So this is what we measure with the Doppler effect. This is what we measure as the proper motion. This is what we see there. So that's this motion up here. If we can put those two velocities together, then we can really find out how that star is moving. And again, the only thing we've used for any of this is the light coming from the star. We measure the proper motion by watching how this star shifts its position relative to others. We measure the other component with the Doppler effect. All Again, all we're doing is using the light coming from that star to be able to determine its position, its positions, and in this case, its actual velocities. <coughs> now, luminosity. 
Luminosity is how bright a star really is. You're measuring how much energy that star is putting out. That's a tough thing to determine. Right? At nighttime, you see, you see a light off in the distance. You, know, you don't know how far away it is. Do you know whether it's a super bright light that's you know, miles away or is it just you know, a flashlight you know, 100 meters away? If it's dark, you, know, you get them at the right distances, you couldn't tell the difference between the two shining at you. The brightness would be the same. The apparent brightness would be the same. Their luminosity would be quite different. Luminosity is actually measured in astronomy as being how bright a star would be if you put it at a specific distance. So how bright would this star be if you put it, and in fact in astronomy it's 10 parsecs. So if you put something 10 parsecs away, that's the standard distance. Right? If you put those two lights, if you put a flashlight and a spotlight, both 10 meters away from you, you can tell the difference pretty easily, right? But if you adjust their distances right, you leave the flashlight there and you put that spotlight much further away, they're going to look just as bright. That's the problem with the stars. We don't know the distances and you don't see it when you look out there. You look out at night, do you see stars closer to you and do you see stars further away? You can't really tell. You can't tell how far away a star is just by looking at it without making other kinds of measurements. But with these, once we are able to figure out the distances, then we can take that distance into account. If you know that that spotlight is 10 times further away, then you can figure out how bright it really is. And that's what astronomers do with the stars. They can compare the stars and they can figure out their distances using, say, parallax is our only method right now. So a way to measure the parallax of the star, find out how far away it is, and then use that. There, and there's a more complicated equation here, but if you know the apparent brightness and you know the lumin and the distance, then you can solve and find out what the luminosity is, how bright this really is, depending on the distance from that star. So there is a way to go ahead and calculate that just based on knowing the apparent brightness. It's the easy one to get. Very easy to tell how bright something appears in the sky, right? That doesn't depend on anything else. We just got to measure how much light is coming from it. Luminosity is tough. Distance is hard, but there are some methods to do that. Parallax is the one we've gone over. So if you have a star, you know how bright it appears to be, you know what the distance is, then you can do a calculation and find its luminosity or its brightness if it were to be 10 parsecs away. Um, it would be, depending if you put the whole equation in there, you might have, it, it's, it's a more complicated equation. It's just the idea that it depends on the distance. It's actually, you couldn't use it directly in parsecs. You probably, if you go through the whole equation, you probably have to put it back in kilometers to actually do the calculations, which I'm not having you guys, having you guys do. But the sun, just to give you an example, if the sun were 10 parsecs away, it's about, about a 4.5 magnitude. I'll do magnitudes, I'll do magnitudes a little bit more here in just a minute. Magnitudes is our way of measuring the brightness of a star. The brightest stars in the sky are around first magnitude. So the sun, if we put it four and a half, four, if we put it 10 parsecs away, 32 light years away, that's in our, that's in our own backyard, right? 
We're only talking about 32 light years away in a galaxy that's 100,000 light years across. Well, bird, we haven't gone any place. It would be one of the fainter stars in the sky. Four and a half magnitude is something if you go out in Harrisburg at night and try to go up and look at it, you wouldn't be able to see it. You know, the night sky will be too, would be too bright. It would overwhelm that. It's part of our lab that we're going to do today is looking at, light, looking at light pollution. So you wouldn't even be able to see the sun. So you, that makes, gives you an idea. How bright are these other stars? How bright is Betelgeuse that is so far away and yet so bright? You know, how, how bright is that? How much energy is that thing putting out to be able to be so bright even though it's actually much further than 10 parsecs away? and actually talking hundreds of parsecs away. So, the, you notice that it depended on the distance squared. So, as you take things twice as far away, they don't just get half as faint, they get one quarter as faint. That's an example of what it's showing here. If you take your light source and you're at one distance, you have some amount of energy going through one square meter. If you go twice as far away, that same energy now has to go through four square meters, right? You've doubled the distance, but the area that you're passing through has gone up by a factor of four, or two times the distance squared. So two squared, four, you're actually sending that same amount of energy now through four square meters. So instead of just being half as bright, it's going to look one quarter as bright because that energy is getting spread out. If you take it three times further away, three squared is nine. Now instead of putting it through one square meter, that same amount of energy, you know, one square meter, putting so much energy there, now you've got to send it through nine of those. So instead of being just as bright as it was, it's now one-ninth as bright. So you can imagine when you take things from one light year to, say if it were ten light years away, it's 10 times further away. 10 times 10, 100. It's already, gone, it's already 1 100th the brightness that it would have otherwise been. So that's just an idea, giving you an idea of how quickly the brightness drops out. Meaning again, we're looking at these really bright stars when we talk about things like Rigel, Betelgeuse, the other bright stars that you see in the sky have to be incredibly bright and putting out an intense amount of energy because our sun at those distances, you wouldn't be able to see without a good, pretty good telescope. If you switch the sun in Betelgeuse, we'd be all burned up because we'd be inside it. <laughs> but in addition to that, in terms of how bright things would be here, or even in the outer part of the solar system, we wouldn't be able to see the sun. If you were to put the sun out at that distance, it would be, in big telescope, yeah, I would be able to pick it out. But it would be a very faint star by comparison to the ones that we actually see. see. So what this is telling us is that when we look at stars, when you look out there at the sky, the only thing you have to go by initially is the distance, is the brightness. So the brightest star, well, that looks like it's close. Well, I've kind of given you that that's given you, uh, jumped to the ending already there, but I told you that isn't the case. Many of the stars that we see that are the brightest are actually a lot further away. And you might have a situation like this. You might have a situation with the observer here, and out in space you have some number of light years away, you have a star, a relatively faint star. Further away, you've got a much brighter star, intrinsically, putting out a lot more energy. But this observer actually sees they look like they're the same brightness. 
So when we see a real bright star, it can mean one of two things. It can mean that it's really a bright star. It's putting out a lot of energy, something like Rigel or Betelgeuse. Or it can mean it just happens to be awful close to us. Right? Sun looks incredibly bright. If you put the sun where Alpha Centauri is, it would look about as bright as Alpha Centauri. Yeah, one of the brighter stars in the sky, but not near as bright as we see it. So the distance is a very important thing in terms of how bright an object will appear to be. You don't know whether it's a nearby star, very close to us, but, but faint, only looking bright because it's close to us, like the sun, or is it really an incredibly bright star much further away that we are still able to, that we're able to see over incredible distances where we would not be able to see a much fainter star. So I'm going to start here on magnitudes and then I'll come back and we'll finish this up on Monday. Um, the the, the lum measure luminosity using a magnitude scale. Everybody loves this one. Yes, I say that sarcastically. Uh, the magnitude scale is, was set up thousands of years ago. So we're stuck with it. It's what astronomers have been using for thousands of years. And what was done uh, was to say that you group the stars into six groups. And we're talking a long, long time ago, you know, many, many thousands of years ago. In fact, the Greek astronomer would have been, uh, was it Hipparchus? who started this magnitude scale and all he did was look at the sky. Now this is long before telescopes, long before any other kind of instrumentation. And he said, well, here's the brightest stars. Stars of the first magnitude, those are the brightest stars. The next grouping of stars were stars of the second magnitude, third, fourth, fifth, and the faintest ones that he could see, again, no, no aid, were stars of sixth magnitude. So that's how he started out the measurements, we still use that scale in part today. Except now we put a little bit more technology to it. So he had just six groupings. Well, certainly you can have a star that's between one and two. You can have stars that are between two and three. So you can actually say that there is a star with a magnitude of 4.25. Well, it fits in there someplace. Not as bright as a fourth magnitude star, not quite as faint as a fifth magnitude star. Yes, there can. Yes, you can have a negative. You can actually have a negative magnitude now. Something that's brighter because Hipparchus did this based on the stars. So he was only looking at stars. The brightest stars in the sky were first magnitude. Well, he didn't talk about things like Jupiter, which can get brighter than, brighter than the brightest stars. Venus, much brighter than the brightest stars. The moon, the sun, can get much brighter. So this actually can extend into negative magnitudes now. You can have decimals in between, so you can actually get more, uh, more detail. And it goes well beyond six. Six is what you can see with the naked eye. But if you add in binoculars, you can go down to about 10th magnitude. If you add in telescopes, you can go down to, you know, what, about, is it about there, about 15th magnitude for a 10-inch telescope? A one-meter telescope goes down to about 18, 19, 20th magnitude. Big telescopes are getting down to 30, 31, 32nd magnitudes now. Now, one of the problems with this that you might see already is that a 4.25 is between 4 and 5. So 4.25 is less bright than 4. 
it's backwards, right? Going the wrong direction. Because of the way Hipparchus set it up, he said, well, these are the grandest stars. They're stars of the first magnitude. But when you decimalize it and digitize all of it, now you're saying that the first magnitude stars are brighter, so a star of magnitude 1 is brighter than a star of magnitude 6. Smaller numbers are brighter stars. So jumping down to the bottom part here, which says it's backwards. Larger magnitudes are actually dimmer objects. The scale on the side there sort of shows the entire range of magnitudes for in terms of apparent magnitude, how bright things appear to be to us here on the Earth. The sun is the brightest thing. It has a magnitude of negative 26.7. Small number, very negative, is very, very bright objects. Full moon is the next brightest object. There's nothing in between there that we can see from the Earth. Full moon is negative 12. Venus gets up to a negative 4. Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is actually negative 1.5. Again, Hipparchus just put them in groups. Here's all these bright stars. He didn't divide them up any more than that. So you actually see some of these stars that are brighter. Betelgeuse, Alpha Centauri, Sirius are actually brighter than first magnitude. And then down through 6. Now when you add in Barnard's star there, Barnard's star is a 9.5. You can barely see it in a pair of binoculars. But it's still one of the closest stars. Very faint. But you're barely going to be able to pick that up in a pair of binoculars. You're not just going to be able to put, take a pair of binoculars, find out where it is, point at it, and pick it out. It's not going to be bright enough. It's not going to stand out that you're going to be able to really know that. Now, if you take the same binoculars and point them at Jupiter, you'll be able to tell. And as we go down again to the fainter things, we're looking at the Hubble and some of the big telescopes are getting down to 30th or even a little beyond that in terms of magnitudes. And I'm going to go ahead and finish up there. I will come back and talk about the middle section of that tomorrow. I really don't have time to get into what it means by saying it's a logarithmic, logarithmic scale. So other than what's there, I want to explain that a little bit more tomorrow. How about Monday? Anybody want to come back tomorrow? No. I didn't think so. Sleep in. I might sleep in. I might get up at 5 instead of 4. That's sleeping in for me. So, so I will talk about that on, on Monday. Questions? Nope, nope. All right. Well, we will, I'll give you a break here for about 10, 5, 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and start working on the lab.